0: Section thirteen of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, volume two by John Tullock This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four Ralph Cudworth Christian Philosophy in Conflict with Materialism, part four. The essential core of all his thought, the reality of mind or spiritual existence, Cudworth vindicates on many grounds, some of them far from satisfactory, as, for example, apparitions and miracles. It is strange how much stress even philosophical theologians in the seventeenth century were inclined to lay upon the supposed fact of apparitions as a direct confutation of atheism. Our author is less credulous than his friend Moore or Glanville. He does not give a series of ghost stories in proof of the supernatural. He admits even that there is much of fabulosity in many of the relations of such appearances. Still he is very indignant with men like Hobbes Who had ventured to explain them by the mere force of imagination as if the strength of imagination were such that it could not only create fancies but also real sensible objects and that at a distance too from the imaginers from which prodigious paradox he adds we may take notice of the fanaticism of some atheists and that there is nothing so monstrously absurd which men infected with atheistic incredulity will not rather entertain into their belief than admit of anything that shall the least hazard or endanger the existence of a god. For if there be once any invisible ghosts or spirits acknowledged as things permanent, it will not be easy for any to give a reason why there might not be one supreme ghost also presiding over them all and the whole world." Close quote. The ideas of miracle and prophecy, again, already presuppose a higher spiritual intelligence supernatural results are only intelligible on a basis of supernaturalism. But seeing that this is the very point in question, it is plainly invalid to argue from an effect which can only be conceived in connection with a supernatural intelligence, back to the reality of such an intelligence as its cause. The supposed effect can only come from such a cause, but the effect itself, however extraordinary, could never have been pronounced miraculous without the presumption of the very thing which it is alleged to prove miracles, in short, being only provable on the presupposition of supernatural intelligence, it is clear we can never prove the fact of such intelligence by supposed miraculous occurrences. But Cudworth urges stronger evidence than anything of this kind for his main position. He sees very well that the question is really one as to the philosophical interpretation of human nature have we any conceptions except those that we derive through sense and the objects of which are essentially subject to sense conditions if we have not then whatever is not sensible must be to us nothing if we cannot validly conceive but only feign or imagine spiritual existence then it can have no reality to us this is the position which he ascribes to hobbes although unhappily he seldom quotes his great opponent quite accurately and the reader has to be cautious as to the conclusions which he draws he makes hobbes an extreme sensationalist and represents him as not only deriving all our knowledge from sense but as denying that there can be any proof of anything apart from sense upon the whole this representation is not unjust even if it be somewhat loosely drawn in cudworth's pages hobbes certainly taught that all our mental conceptions are born from sense that there is no conception in a man's mind which hath not at first totally or by parts been begotten upon the organs of sense. Close quote. Nor can it well be disputed that he denied the reality of any existence other than corporeal, although he does not use the exact words attributed to him by our author, quote, that the only evidence which we have of the existence of anything is from sense. Close quote. He does not say so directly but he plainly implies that pure incorporeal existence is an absurdity without any valid ground of evidence footnote speaking of invisible agents he says in a passage already so far quoted in a preceding note the opinion that such spirits were incorporeal or immaterial could never enter into the mind of any man by nature because though men may put together words of contradictory signification as spirit and incorporeal yet they can never have the imagination of anything answering to them" and a footnote cudworth's answer to all this is the common one that sense could never give us cognition nor originate thought or the conscious distinction betwixt nature and ourselves if sense were our highest and indeed only ultimate faculty all discrimination of the objects of our sensations and of ourselves in relation to them would have been impossible quote, since one sense cannot judge of another or correct the error of it, all sense as such, that is, as fancy and apparition, being alike true. Close quote. He quotes even Democritus as supporting two kinds of knowledge, one by the senses and another by the mind, and appeals to the atomic philosophy itself, misinterpreted, he says, by the notorious dunces who so much pretend to it, in proof of certain supposed qualities of matter, the so-called secondary qualities, such as heat and cold bitter and sweet red and green not being real qualities in the objects without but only our own fancies in other words the contribution of our minds in sensitive perception to make sense everything seems to him to destroy the very basis of the supposed knowledge derived from it upon such an hypothesis sense itself could hardly escape from becoming a nonentity quote, for as much as neither fancy nor sense falls under sense But only the objects of them we neither seeing vision nor feeling taction nor hearing audition much less hearing sight or seeing taste or the like wherefore though god be never so much corporeal as some theists have conceived him to be yet since the chief of his essence and as it were his inside must by these be acknowledged to consist in mind wisdom and understanding he could not possibly as to this fall under corporeal sense sight or touch Any more than thought can. Again, were existence to be allowed to nothing that doth not fall under corporeal sense, then must we deny the existence of soul and mind in ourselves and others, because we can neither feel nor see any such thing. Whereas we are certain of the existence of our own souls, partly from an inward consciousness of our own cogitations, and partly from that principle of reason that nothing cannot act. AND THE EXISTENCE OF OTHER INDIVIDUAL SOULS IS MANIFEST TO US FROM THEIR EFFECTS UPON THEIR RESPECTIVE BODIES, THEIR MOTIONS, ACTIONS, AND DISCOURSE. WHEREFORE, SINCE THE ATHEISTS CANNOT DENY THE EXISTENCE OF SOUL OR MIND IN MEN, THOUGH NO SUCH THING FALL UNDER EXTERNAL SENSE, THEY HAVE AS LITTLE REASON TO DENY THE EXISTENCE OF A PERFECT MIND, PRESIDING OVER THE UNIVERSE, WITHOUT WHICH IT CANNOT BE CONCEIVED WHENCE OUR IMPERFECT ONES SHOULD BE DERIVED. To this subject of the reality and nature of spiritual existence, Cudworth reverts again and again. In addition to all that he says in the opening section of his final chapter, he devotes two further sections virtually to the same subject. He discusses at special length the nature of spirit, the difficulties of exempting it from the idea of extension, and particularly the question whether any created spirit can be conceived as entirely incorporeal or, as he says, without a corporeal endowment and here it is he runs off into his digression as to the doctrine of the resurrection. He discusses also with great keenness the question of the origin of life, and pronounces, it is needless to say, very strongly against the possibility of its springing out of what he calls dead and senseless matter. It is curious to notice how closely he here approaches the recent phases of such discussions, and how little of essential novelty there is even in the most startling theories of the modern scientific world in speaking for example of certain speculations which attributed the origin of life not only the sensitive in brutes but also the rational in men to modifications of matter by organization alone he might be supposed characterizing the theory of evolution in its latest form whether he can be supposed as giving any satisfactory answer to it in what he says by way of exposing its absurdity is another question this hylozoic atheism for so he calls it thus bringing all conscious and reflexive life or animality out of a supposed senseless stupid and unconscious life of nature in matter and that merely from a different accidental modification thereof or contexture of parts does plainly bring something out of nothing which is an absolute impossibility if matter as such had life perception and understanding belonging to it then of necessity must every atom or smallest particle thereof be a distinct percipient by itself from whence it will follow that there could not possibly be any such men and animals as now are compounded out of them but every man and animal would be a heap of innumerable percipients and innumerable perceptions and intellections whereas it is plain that there is but one life and understanding one soul or mind one perceiver or thinker in every one and to say that these innumerable particles of matter do all confederate together that is to make every man and animal to be a multitude or commonwealth of percipients and persons as it were clubbing together is a thing so absurd and ridiculous that one would wonder the hylozoists should not rather choose to recant their fundamental error of the life of matter than endeavour to seek shelter and sanctuary for the same under such a pretense for though voluntary agents and persons may many of them resign up their wills to one and by that means have all but as it were one artificial will Yet can they not possibly resign up their sense and understanding too, so as to have all but one artificial life, sense, and understanding? Much less could this be done by senseless atoms, or particles of matter, supposed to be devoid of all consciousness or animality." Life and understanding cannot be conceived as mere accidents of matter, or as possibly evolved or generated from it by any process. That which understandeth in us is not, quote, blood or brains but an incorporeal soul or mind vitally united to a terrestrial organized body and the most perfect mind or intellect of all is not the soul of any body but complete in itself without such vital union and sympathy with matter we conclude therefore he adds with what he no doubt felt to be an effective slap at hobbes that this passage of a modern writer we worms cannot conceive how god can understand without brains is vox the language and philosophy rather of worms or brute animals than of men. He pursues in effect the same discussion in the following or fourth section regarding the phenomena of motion and cogitation. He can only conceive of motion as originating in some primal self-activity or uncreated mind. Whatever is moved is moved by something else. But the world is an eternal moved. It presents nothing but a course of endless changes there is no break or beginning in the infinite series. He supposes the democratic atheist to urge this as an argument against any first cause or original self-moving power. But admitting the fact of motion to be as represented, this is no reason but the contrary, he urges, in favour of its endless continuity. For were all the motion that is in the world a passion from something else, and no first unmoved active mover, then must it be a passion from no agent or without an action, and consequently proceed from nothing, and either cause itself or be made without a cause." The very idea of motion as a translation of influence from one body to another, or what we now call the correlation of forces, seems to him to prove undeniably an original self-moving force or intelligence, or, in his own words, that there is some other substance besides body, something incorporeal, which is self-moving and self-active, and was the first unmoved mover of the heavens or world. The movement of one body upon another, or the mere translation of force, he calls hetero but we can only rest in self-activity, or auto-kinesy, that is to say, in the action of quote, some cogitative or thinking being, which, not acted upon by anything without it, nor at all locally moved, but only mentally, is the immovable mover of the heaven. And so he returns to the primary and essential strain of all his thought, that cogitation is in order of nature before what he calls local motion, and incorporeal before corporeal substance, the former having a natural imperium upon the latter. In other words, that mind is before matter and superior to it. As he elsewhere expresses it, knowledge is older than all sensible things, mind senior to the world and the architect thereof. This he says was the doctrine of the pagan theists, and the essential controversy betwixt them and their atheistic opponents, whereas to the former mind was quote, the oldest of all things senior to the world and elements, and by nature hath a princely and lordly dominion over all close quote. to the latter, matter or body was the first principle, and mind merely quote, a postnate thing younger than the world, a weak umbratile and a image, and next to nothing. Close quote and the controversy thus stated may be also as he supposes clearly and satisfactorily decided dead and senseless matter he says could never have created or generated mind and understanding but a perfectly omnipotent mind could create matter there must be something self-active and hierarchical, something that can act both from itself and upon matter as having a natural imperium or command over it life and understanding soul and mind are no syllables or complexions of things secondary and derivative but simple primitive and uncompounded natures moreover nothing can be more evident than this that mind and understanding have a higher degree of entity or perfection in it and is a greater reality in nature than mere senseless matter or bulky extension if the sun be nothing but a mass of fire or inanimate subtle matter agitated then hath the most contemptible animal that can see the sun, and hath consciousness and self-enjoyment a higher degree of entity and perfection in it than that whole fiery globe. Therefore, he concludes, quote, A perfect understanding being is the beginning and head of the scale of entity. An omnipotent understanding being, which is itself its own intelligible, is the first original of all things. B but while cudworth thus clearly maintains mind or nos at the head of the universe he has difficulty in conceiving the translation of mind into nature the conception of god on the one side and a series of material phenomena on the other acting under their own laws by no means satisfy him such a philosophy appeared to exclude from nature the operation of any save material causes and indeed quote any other vitality acting in it than only the production of a certain quantity of local motion, and the conservation of it according to some general laws." Quote. Hence his theory of a plastic nature, which is defined in his own language, quote, as an inferior and subordinate instrument drudgingly executing that part of providence which consists in the regular and orderly motion of matter, yet so as there is besides a higher providence which, presiding over it, doth often supply the defects of it, and sometimes overrule it forasmuch as this plastic nature cannot act electively or with discretion. Unless we recognize such a medium for the divine action, we must, he supposes, either conclude with the democratic atheists, against the reality of this action altogether, or else hold that, quote, God himself doth all immediately, and as it were with his own hands, form the body of every gnat and fly, insect and mite. Close quote. The Cartesian notion of a supreme mover originally starting the machine of the world and holding all its final springs in his hand, while it moves onwards unceasingly in obedience to its original impress, was uncongenial to the Platonic type of thought. A god thus standing at a distance from the world was very much the same as no god at all, and hence the tang of mechanic atheism which he found in Cartesianism. It seemed to him, as well as to more, to banish the presence of mental, and consequently divine, causality from the world. Moreover, many natural phenomena were to him inexplicable on the principle of mere mechanical law. On the other hand, the idea of God himself acting in all things immediately served to render divine providence operos, solicitous, and distractious, and thereby to make the belief of it to be entertained with great difficulty and give advantage to atheists. Such an idea, according to him, was inconsistent with the actual course of nature, the slow and gradual process by which the generation of things proceeds, and, those errors and bungles which may be supposed to be the result of some agency less than the highest, and therefore capable of being sometimes frustrated and disappointed by the interposition of matter. Whereas an omnipotent agent, as it could dispatch its work in a moment, so it would always do it infallibly and irresistibly no inaptitude or stubbornness of matter, being ever able to hinder such a one, or make him bungle or fumble in anything. Close quote. Cudworth's plastic nature is an embodied art or reason, quote, reason immersed and plunged into matter and, as it were, fuddled in it and confounded with it. Close quote. It is not the divine, not archetypal, but only ectypal. It is a dull unconscious soul animating all things and working in all a living yet blind power carrying out the purposes of the divine architect, and insensibly clothing and making manifest the divine mind. It is curious how he insists on its vital and even spiritual character, and yet on the fact that it is without definite consciousness or self-possession. He illustrates its action by reference to the force of habit, according to which we execute so many spontaneous movements without any deliberation or conscious purpose. As there is thus, so to speak, a subordinate and secondary soul in us, which carries out unreflectively the behests of the higher intelligent nature, so is there such a soul in the world, constantly executive of the divine plans, a dumb, patient, sleepless energy, ever obedient to the divine will, and unceasingly translating it into form and action. It is something like the ancient distinction of the divine reason in itself and in manifestation. Footnote the logos endiathetos and the logos prophorikos, the reason of the mind and the reason uttered End of footnote. or again it is like the instinct of animals which directly or without knowledge in the ordinary sense accomplishes all the ends of knowledge but instinct is in this sense superior to the plastic nature that while it moves blindly it moves sensitively whereas the soul which he supposes to be resident in matter Is destitute alike of sensation and intelligence a purely motive organic principle in the hands of a higher agent nor is cudworth content with asserting the existence of such a general principle or power animating the world an anima mundi everywhere diffused and taking various forms in plants animals and human beings he seems to recognize something of a special plastic force in plants and animals and the various orders of being forming them as so many little worlds Although it be unreasonable, he says, quote, to think that every plant, herb, and pile of grass hath a plastic or vegetative soul of its own, yet there may possibly be one plastic unconscious nature in the whole terraqueous globe by which vegetables may be severally organized and framed and all things performed which transcend the power of fortuitous mechanism, Close quote and so there may be in the ascending orders of creation a series of higher plastic principles governing their formation and molding them to their special ends. It is unnecessary to enlarge our exposition. Cudworth's general idea of a plastic nature is nothing else than the old platonic dream of a soul of the world, adopted in his case from affinity with this type of thought, and also in distinct reaction against the mechanical theory of Descartes it is plainly this spirit of antagonism which prompts his minor adaptations of the idea to the several orders of animals and plants descartes it is well known carried out his mechanical theory so as to deny all special animal life in men or in brutes thought on one side and extension on the other made up for him the sum of the universe the simplicity of the cartesian conception seemed bald and empty of divine meaning to the cambridge school They wished to feel the breath of the divine in every part of nature, and to bring it before them in all its movements as animated and full of life. But in doing this Cudworth ceased to philosophize. He lost sight of facts, as his school was too apt to do, and yielded to the mere fantasies of imagination in suggesting such a number and variety of intermediary principles. The Cartesian generalization may or may not be able to vindicate itself, but the theory of a general plastic nature with distinct plastic principles in the progressive orders of being, is condemned by that law of parsimony, which is the first and most imperative canon of all genuine philosophical investigations. c. In carrying out his lengthened analysis of the idea of the divine unity as underlying both the mythological and philosophical conceptions of antiquity, Cudworth, as we have already said, comes across the subject of the Platonic Trinity and its relation to the doctrine of the Christian Trinity. This leads him into a special subdigression, which exposed him in his own age and in the age immediately following to much animadversion. He was supposed to have so expressed himself in reference to the opinions both of Plato and the Christian fathers as to indicate not merely a trinity of persons, but a trinity of beings. He was accused, in other words, of so conceiving the trinity that while the Son and the Holy Ghost are acknowledged to be of the same substance with the Father, yet they were not numerically or individually the same they were centred not in one singular or individual but only one common or universal essence or substance this and other assertions of a like nature are said to have made so much noise that they were not only often cited in company but that hardly a pamphlet or book for some years was written about the blessed trinity especially in england and in the heterodox way which did not bring in Dr. Cudworth upon the stage and vouch his name and quotations for its purpose, close quote. While on the other hand, the truly Orthodox made his doctrine as a mark of their invective. He was denounced as a tritheist or a tritheistic in the language of the time, and by others as a virtual Arian in the sense of Dr. Samuel Clark, who, while asserting the divinity of the three persons in the Godhead, yet maintained that the Father alone is truly and properly the supreme being it is unnecessary to enter into any detailed consideration of cudworth's views on the point because first of all he has nowhere distinctly enunciated his own views and secondly the topic is at best a subordinate one to the main structure of his thought as a christian philosopher it came before him merely in relation to his exposition of the ancient philosophy which itself is an excrescence upon his true subject And whatever opinions he expresses are designed solely to expound and illustrate the affinity of the platonic and christian thinkers. Having first of all in the course of his historical review in the fourth book brought forward and condemned what he calls the pseudo-platonic trinity or the views of several of the later platonists who while speaking of a trinity yet adulterated and deformed the original conception which he supposes in his usual manner to have been derived from the secret doctrine or kabbalah of the hebrews he proceeds to vindicate the genuine Platonic doctrine, and to draw out its affinities with the Christian. Whereas the pseudo-Platonic trinity confounded the difference betwixt God and the creature, and set forth a confused jumble of created and uncreated beings together, Plato and, quote, some of the Platonists retained much of the ancient genuine Kabbalah and made a very near approach to the true Christian trinity, close quote. Their three divine hypostases, viz., monad or God, mind, and soul are conceived as numerically distinct, or possessing distinct singular essences of their own, and yet as united in one deity. None of them, quote, are accounted as creations, but all other things whatsoever the creatures of them. They are not only all eternal, but also necessarily existent and absolutely undestroyable. Close quote. And yet they are, quote, all three really but one creator and one God. The three platonic hypostases seem to be really nothing else but infinite goodness, infinite wisdom, and infinite active love and power, not as mere qualities or accidents, but as substantial things that have some kind of subordination one to another, all concurring together to make up one theon, or divinity, just as the center, immovable distance, and movable circumference concurrently make up one sphere. Close quote. So far, therefore, he argues, there is an undoubted congruity betwixt the Platonic and the Christian trinities. They are alike, at least, in these three fundamentals, First, in not making a mere trinity of names and words, or of logical notions and inadequate conceptions of one and the same thing, but a trinity of hypostases, or subsistences, or persons. Secondly, in making none of the three hypostases to be creatures, but all eternal, necessarily existent, and universal infinite, omnipotent, and creators of the whole world, which is all one, in the sense of the ancients, as if they should have affirmed them to be homoousian. Lastly, in supposing these three divine hypostases, however sometimes paganically called three gods, to be essentially one divinity. From whence it may be concluded, he adds, that Platonism is undoubtedly more agreeable to Christianity than Arianism it being a certain middle thing betwixt that and Sabellianism, which, in general, was that mark which the Nicene Council also aimed at." Close quote. From this very condensed summary of Cudworth's exposition, it is at least evident that he did not wish to depart in any respect from the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. If he Platonized, according to his manner of speaking, he certainly did not mean to Arianize. On the contrary, Arianism is spoken of throughout as a distinct system from Platonism. And again the platonic doctrine of the trinity near as it seemed to him to the christian doctrine is in two important respects discriminated from it and pronounced so far deficient first because the platonists dreamed of no such thing at all as one and the same universal essence or substance of the three divine hypostases and secondly because though they acknowledged none of these hypostases to be creatures but all god yet did they assert an essential dependence of the second and third upon the first together with a certain gradual subordination, and therefore no absolute co-equality. These features of the Platonic doctrine, in which it came short of the full Catholic doctrine, have led many late writers to symbolize it with Arianism, but wrongly so, for they are plainly separated on the essential and testing point of the eternity of the second hypostasis, which the Arians denied, hence receiving the name of Exocontians, and the Platonists affirmed. Footnote ex uc of a substance that once was not, one of the Arian catchphrases, hence the name ex End of footnote. The real affinity of Platonism is not with Arianism, but with the undeveloped doctrine of the first three centuries, which hesitated to assert the absolute oneness in essence of the Father and Son, and, quote, did not so much as determine that the Holy Ghost was an hypostasis, much less that he was God, close quote. This clear recognition on the part of Cudworth of a process of development in the Christian doctrine of the Trinity was evidently his main point of difference from the common orthodoxy of his time. Speaking in the name of a Christian Platonist or Platonic Christian, he apologizes for Plato and the genuine Platonists that while approaching so near the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, they yet fell short of it which however was not to be wondered at seeing that the generality of Christian doctors for the first three centuries failed in the same manner to reach its full meaning and statement. This he points out and illustrates at length by quotations, and discovers plainly a certain measure of sympathy with the less systematized and less articulated doctrine of the early church. It is in connection with this that he reverts to the distinction between a singular essence numerically and one common and universal essence or substance and shows further how the early fathers commonly did not distinguish betwixt usia and hypostasis. But while freely pointing out this, and tracing the steps in the development of the Christian doctrine, he nowhere avows his own opinions in any definite manner, nor lays himself open to any charge of heterodoxy. He may be mistaken in his historical analysis of the opinions of the early church, or in some of the definite statements he makes on the subject. But his conception of the Christian doctrine, as only attaining gradually to its full expression in the consciousness of the church, is now a commonplace in all schools of theological thought. It was a distinct merit of Cudworth to have seized the conception so clearly as he did in his time. The affinity of the Christian and Platonic doctrines was overdone by him, and there is much vagueness and uncertainty in many points of the analogy which he draws betwixt them, as there is in all the details of his historical sketch throughout there is the usual lack of criticism and historical perspective but there were few minds after all but his own which had then conceived the idea of such analogy at all or sought to trace and unfold those correspondences of thought that constitute the basis of a philosophy of religion d cudworth's views of the resurrection are in a similar manner a mere appendix to his general line of argument they occur in the third section of the fifth or concluding chapter in relation to his discussion of the nature of incorporeal and unextended being. With unnecessary minuteness, he tries to meet all the objections that may be urged against the idea of such being, and, amongst others, the inference which seems to follow from it as to the illocality and immobility of human souls and other spirits. But how can such finite spirits be conceived as thus illocal and immovable nowhere and everywhere? This is inconsistent with their finiteness and moreover opposed to the very principles of religionists themselves which imply that the souls of men departing out of the body do move from one place to another with this clue in his hand he leaves off the general discussion in which he has been engaged and enters upon a prolonged consideration of the state of the soul after death is it after all divested of all outward vehicle or body on the contrary he holds it to be plainly the teaching of the old philosophic kabbalah through which every element of truth appears to him always filtered that while the soul quits the earthly body it is yet by no means stripped of all bodily shape the gross earthy part is put off as an outer garment but there is an interior instrument or vestment hanging about it even in this life which remains and serves to give to the departed soul locality and capacity of motion nay there is not only according to the ancient opinion such a spirituous and airy body surrounding the terrestrial, but yet a third kind of body, of a higher rank than either, luciform and celestial, the special clothing of those souls that have become purged and cleansed from all corporeal affections. Our author explains at length the agreement betwixt this ancient philosophic doctrine and the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. They resemble each other in the two points of acknowledging, first, that the supreme happiness of the soul is not to be found in disjunction from all body, and secondly, that its future bodily investment cannot be of a gross earthy nature. The doctrine of the resurrection is a response to the intellectual instinct which associates enjoyment with definiteness and locality of being, and at the same time to the spiritual aspiration which seeks for an emancipation from all grosser affections and passions the spiritual resurrection doctrine of st paul is an inspired affirmation of the neoplatonic dream of a luciform and celestial vehicle for the purified soul this present body according to the inspired expositor is to be looked upon as merely quote a dead seed of the future resurrection body which therefore is in some sense the same and in some sense not the same with it Close quote. the sowing in corruption and the raising in incorruption represents closely the idea of the Pythagoric Kabbalah. The change will consist not in merely gilding and varnishing over of the outside but in a spiritual transformation whereby we shall be fashioned in the likeness of Christ's glorious body. This is very much the sum of his expanded exposition, which leads us however through many winding paths and special discussions as to the immediate state of the dead and as to whether angels and even ghosts have bodies. His opinion clearly is that there is no finite spirit can be conceived as entirely bodiless. This is the exclusive property of the supreme spirit, who alone can be absolutely and purely incorporeal, quote, whose essence is complete and life entire within itself, without the conjunction or appendage of any body, close quote. And so also is this spirit, or God himself, alone ubiquitous, it being, quote, peculiar to that incorporeal essence which is infinite, to quicken and actuate all things and take cognizance of all. End of chapter 4, part 4